0: You're listening to episode 51 of the Product Boss Podcast.
1: In this episode, we chat with John of Pins and Paper. But first, we wanted to hop in here before the, the music sounds, and we wanted to ask you guys a favor. We would love it if you stopped right now and subscribed to this podcast. And if you'd be so kind, we would love it if you could either leave us a review or share this with someone you think could benefit from listening to the Product Boss Podcast. So, to jump in, we wanted to just share a couple of reviews that we've recently gotten that we are so honored and thankful for. So, let's start off with Bad Mama Jama. One mama Jama. Mama right? Jama. Yeah. You say tomato, I say tomato. So she said, or he said, I have been listening to a lot of e-commerce based podcasts for a few years now. And this podcast has quickly become one of my standout favorites. Mina and Jacqueline are so knowledgeable and provide so many nuggets and actionable insights on top of providing some great tips. They are genuinely likable. And I oftentimes find myself chuckling along with them. Great. Listen, thanks for chuckling with us. We I know it's a, a woman,
0: obviously Mama jamma. <laughs> so,
1: um, genuinely likable. You guys, these make me feel so good. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and and letting, we know that it is so competitive out there with what you choose to listen to and put in your earbuds. So we are just so grateful for you um, to take the time and listen to us speak and chuckle. And who else should we read off? I want to
0: read off one from uh, Five Little Elephants. I've kind of interacted with her a little bit on Instagram because she's on there too. She does like custom tumblers and cups and uh, glassware and stuff like that. And she has five kids, hence the five little elephants. So, you know, bless her heart before managing so many kids She but I wanted to read hers. New fangirl, she put. In a sea of service-based podcasts, this one is an answer to my prayers. Perfect for me and my Etsy business. I'm over here binging these episodes and learning new things. Thank you ladies for sharing your knowledge and helping others achieve their business dreams. Thank you, Amanda. That is such an awesome review.
1: And you're helping us reach our business dreams. So thank you to all of our listeners. And the last one I wanted to read off was Urban Alchemy. And we are familiar with this product. So she writes, After listening to a handful of these entertaining and highly informative podcast episodes, I knew that these ladies would be important allies for growing my product-based business, Urban Alchemy. I have since joined their mastermind and couldn't be happier with my decision. I encourage you to give them a listen. You will not be disappointed." So thank you because we Thanks, love, Tal- we love working with you today and we are just so honored and grateful that you took the time out of your busy day to head on over to leave a review for us.
0: Yeah, she does um, roll on aromatherapy that's clinically based blends. So she'll be also in the show notes as well, along with five
1: little elephants. So Thank you so much. And also bad mama jamma. If you want to <laughs> jump onto our Facebook group and let us know who you are, we will also thank you in person um, via the internet. Since
0: personally- <laughs> and link- yeah. we'll actually link you in the show notes.
1: Mm-hmm. So thank you again. And if you do have the opportunity to just pause right now and head on over to subscribe, leave a review or share this with someone, you know, we would be so grateful. So let's head into the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Product Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Snyder, with my talented co-host, Mina Kunlo-Sita. Hey, Mina. Hey, Jacqueline. So we're excited today to have a special guest. We have John McQuaid of Pins and Paper. Welcome, John.
2: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, we're so excited. We were having a pre-chat and just cracking up. We
2: definitely pre-gamed a little bit. (laughs) We let it to loosen
0: our
1: guests up. We
2: really loosened it up right there.
1: <laughs> so hopefully, it continues on. So if you have watched our Instagram or IGTV, you will see a little mini episode of Mina interviewing John at Magic in Vegas, and um, he was just so gracious to come on the podcast because we fell in love with his business and all of the products they had. I mean, just everything, like. I wanted to buy everything, and so yeah, we're excited to have you. So tell us a little bit. I'm like, about... don't
2: worry, you can still buy everything. <laughs> totally, all totally available. still open. No worries.
1: <laughs> I don't know who I'd send all these cards to, but tell us, um, so, tell us a little bit about Pins and Paper.
2: Yeah, so Pins and Paper is actually a greeting card company that we started. Uh, we were both in Asia, living in Asia last year. Uh, me and my business partner Mike, and we had always done uh, kind of creative businesses in the past. And one thing that we really wanted to focus on this time around was kind of this idea of creating a a passive income because we had done, we had had a huge startup where we raised millions before and did that and that kind of changed into a corporate setting. Uh, So with pins and paper, we realized that uh, enamel pins were becoming really popular, especially around LA and New York. And we really wanted to make that kind of something that you could not just buy for yourself, but something that you could gift away to someone uh, so we came up with the idea of incorporating these enamel pins onto cards to kind of bring the cards to life. Every company that we've ever had, our tagline has always been bring X to life. So this time it's bring greeting cards to life. Got to pump life into everything that you do. Um, so we started it about a, about a year ago when we first got back from Asia and we're pushing really hard to work with some of the bigger retail partners that we had had before.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So when you're in Asia, why did you go to Asia? Just curious.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, no, definitely. I went to Asia after working for my last startup for five years. And I think after doing that, I really wasn't sure where, where to go after that. I feel like you never know how difficult and time-consuming and stressful running a, a company is going to be until you're kind of force in it and you know we had gotten to this moment where we raised millions of dollars from investors and so we had to answer to all of them and it really just started to kind of beat us down after a while and so when when I felt like the company had kind of gotten to a point where I felt like it was more corporate focused and not as creative I knew that I had a space to be able to leave and versus kind of my fear has always been to turn into a a businessman it's been like (laughs) My worst nightmare. nightmare ever. My worst nightmare because <laughs> I really feel like you lose that creative that creative edge when everything has to be presented in number form. Because a lot of creative ideas, the numbers just aren't there when you launch them, uh, and you really just have to believe and believe and push and push and push. Uh, and so I, I used that moment to to exit out. And so I was looking for inspiration everywhere. I started applying to these entertainment companies in LA, and I realized that even those didn't seem not corporate. Uh, So I kind of just ended up being like, okay, look, I have this time, I have all this money saved up. It's either I stay in LA or stay in New York and kind of keep pursuing this life in a box of how you're told to live, or use this moment to really kind of fill myself up with life to kind of figure it all out and to feel charged again and to feel that creative spirit. So I went to, uh, to Mexico at first for a few months. And then went to Asia for the year last year, which was only supposed to be for two weeks. But I bought a motorcycle. And uh, that (laughs) added some (laughs) time. So uh, I I ended up living in Vietnam for six months and then traveling through Asia for the other six, uh, which was awesome. In Vietnam, I joined a project to build wells in small villages. So that was uh, really nice, especially after kind of leading our startup into a more corporate feel. Um, It really felt there was this need that I needed to do something that didn't have to do with mass products
1: Yeah, that I needed
2: to like bring it in, refocus on, on people. Cause our first startup was this DIY company. And the whole thing was realizing that people get less creative as they go on because they're told they can't be creative. They're told it won't make money. They're told they don't have time, that it's too hard. Uh, And we really wanted to simplify that problem. And so I, I think I ended up staying in Asia so long because I really wanted to get in touch with this idea of creative giving and being able to use your creative side to, to better other people's lives as well.
1: Yeah. Greater impact for sure. So tell us, so you've known Mike for about, about a decade, it seems like at this point.
2: Yeah. About eight to nine. Eight
1: to nine yeah. years. <laughs> so Nina and I call each other biz, biz besties, even though we're biz partners, do you guys have anything that you call each other or,
2: you know, we really need to, <laughs> we really, we really need to, uh, because people are always like, "So you guys live together?" I'm like, "We we we live together, yeah." And they're like, "But you <laughs> own a business together?" I'm like, "Yes, we've owned several businesses together, and like, and you're best friends." I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> yeah. yeah. And people are just like, "Okay." So you're married. And I'm like, no, we're not married. I although for tax purposes, maybe we should consider maybe we should consider. True. Um,
1: so tell us a little bit about Mike, like how you met him and sort of the process of you guys starting that business.
2: Yeah. I was actually um going to Berkeley for politics for a moment and absolutely hated my life while I was doing it. I Dropped out of school after, I think, my second semester. Had no idea what I was going to do. I just knew that studying politics was going to be the the death of me. Especially <laughs> if the goal was to go into politics after that. I was like... And and now, it turns out you don't even have to go to school to <laughs> go into politics. So that's, that's nice. So maybe I still have it. So I ended up meeting Mike in San Francisco. And Mike was designing his own line of clothes at the time. Um, and so we started talking about clothes and fashion... And he offered me this role on his branding team to to pump out his clothes, and through that we ended up getting them in Urban Outfitters, which was kind of our first taste of getting into huge retailers like that. And then after a few months, we started teaching workshops all around San Francisco, teaching people how to design clothes, uh, how to screen print their own clothes, uh, pretty much any kind of customizable piece of fashion that you could do. We started hosting these classes. Um, after pumping those out for a good six months, they somehow, and this is not saying that his clothes were not the best ever, uh, but somehow our classes started to make more money than the actual line of clothing did. Uh, So we knew that we were onto something there. Uh, So we took some time, we got rid of all the stores that we personally owned, and took some time to figure out how we could capitalize on this market of people wanting to experience things and learn new things uh, in a creative manner. And so we came up with this idea called Maker's Kit, where we would sell product goods that contained all the supplies that you would need for whatever workshop it was, whether if it was screen printing, or it was jewelry making, or candle making, or plants. Or So you would buy the the kit, and they all came with video links. So we shot video content for everyone. Um, so you would buy the kit, you would bring it home, and then you would basically take this digital class in your house at your own time with your friends. We had people that would do parties where they would buy boxes of kits, so there'd be like twelve in it, and they would throw their own uh, kind of crafting parties, and it went really well, kind of right off the bat. Uh, we got a cover story in the San Francisco Chronicle in our second month, just because one of the writers came and took one of our our workshops. Uh, we ended up filming a segment for. A very popular entrepreneurial show. Uh, (laughs) Like, am I allowed to talk about that? I don't know. Uh, It's not dolphins. It's not dolphins in a pond. It's another animal in a tank. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Um,
2: And (laughs) so we went, we went and did that, and then ended up getting a deal on the show. Um, And then our investor at the time ended up getting into some legal problems Uh, so we were kind of left in limbo for a while and we were really running out of money Uh, we had moved to LA and we had bought a warehouse because we had we were working with Macy's at the time now and we were really kind of running low in a way that like we weren't getting paid we really couldn't afford the business at all and so we ended up applying to this tech accelerator named TechStars which I was against. I was also against going on the show too. So anything that I'm against, always do the opposite. It'll <laughs> always work out really, really well. Really, really well. That's what I've learned about myself. And we ended up getting into this program. So we moved to New York and ended up raising around $2 million for our startup within a few months. Uh, and that was kind of a real eye opener because I think, as you guys probably can agree to. When you have kind of this creative business, you're really not sure how to bridge it into a way that is profitable for yourself. Like you can make the company money and have it be self-funded, but to really like kind of get that kick up and figure out how you get funding for something like that and how you sell it to these investors um, was something that I had never thought about before. And I'm really fortunate that they, they let us into the program.
0: Yeah. Product is, um, it's hard, especially you have to convince them of the product, the risk, the manufacturing, all that stuff. Um, I think the workshops, you know, immediately that you're going to make money. Whereas with the, even the clothing yeah. line, you kind of have to wait it out a little bit. You know, it's a, Absolutely. it's a reinvestment over and over. Um, whereas Absolutely. You know, service, you can make money immediately and just really go.
2: Right. Well Cause people it. are paying up front. And I feel like when you make that switch to a different kind of uh, payment method or, Uh you know, you do net 60s with all these huge retailers where they don't pay you till 60 days later. So you really have to come up with this capital first. It was like when we started working with Macy's, it was like we were both thrilled and it was like, this is amazing. And then they put in this $50,000 order. And then we got the order and we were celebrating. And then, you know, after one shot of tequila, we kind of both sat back <laughs> and we're like, wait, how do we make this? Like, how, like right, they're going to give us this money, but they're not going to give us this money until we give okay. them the stuff. Like, how How do we do this? Because uh, it, you know, it's not really something, I, I didn't go to business school. Mike did. Um, but it's really something that you don't really think about at first because, I think we're in such an age where you just see numbers on a paper and you're like, whoa, like that's more zeros than I've seen. Mm -hmm. And then you don't really, you just get excited from that and you don't really think about uh, not just the money to come up with it, but also how much time it's going to take you to make that much of that. I think that was one of the first growing pains that we ever had.
1: So were you selling the maker's kits to Macy's
2: or the clothing line? We were selling the maker's kits. Yeah. Once the classes took off uh, and we came up with this concept of packaging classes and then having them come with videos, um, we kind of stopped doing the clothes. And we're really focused on trying to run with that and seeing, seeing if we could grow Something out of that. I think we were both excited by the idea of taking this in-person experience and then seeing if we could somehow make it a digital experience, but also have the same feel to it.
1: I used to live by this florist. It was like a really high-tech florist um, in the San Fernando Valley and yeah, in LA. I only and go and to um,
2: high-tech florist.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> it was cool because you could take classes, and it had digital screens in front of you, and you would oh, pay cool. for the flowers, and then you would. Um, you would take the class that would tell you how to do arrangements. Okay. So you could buy, but then it was like this in-person. It obviously went out of business because I think that's a lot of people and a lot of supply without having like set courses. But it's like, that was the in-person version. So how did you guys navigate that then? You get the order from Macy's. You know, you're not getting paid. Like this is ahead of time. You have to buy in the product. You have to package, Mm -hmm. you ship, and then you don't get paid till 60
2: days after. How did, what did you guys do? Um, well, there's always the option of, you know, having it factored where you get a funder who will take 10% of total price. Um, I'm Jewish. So that was not going to work for me. So I was like, absolutely, absolutely not. I'm like, you said one, they're like 10. I'm like, oh, we don't do zeros. Like, oh, sorry, that's not going to work for me. Uh So luckily for us, initially, um, we were still doing the workshops all around, uh, at this point, all around California. Uh, We were doing events in LA and we were doing events. We started doing events with West Elm in their stores and with Macy's and even before they carried our kids. So we were very fortunate that the workshops that we were doing could at least mainly fund our first POs. But besides that, I mean, you know, Mike drove for Uber. Uh, I worked in a cafe part time. I was working on TV productions in LA just as a production assistant. I mean, I think the hustle that you have to do to get success is so not glamorous. And Mm -hmm. I think, uh, and that's what I mean by people only see numbers. I mean, I remember even when we got our startup invested in our bank account was at $2 million and we had all this press around it and Forbes wrote about us and all. And I remember the biggest misconception was that I was rich. <laughs> cause I was like, I still haven't gotten a. I, I I was like, I haven't gotten a paycheck like in four years. Like, and I was like, I don't know who, who's rich here. Like I'm still not getting paid. Uh, so, and I think that, you know, those are things you don't know until, until it happens. And cause I would have thought the same thing. You know, you see articles about startups raising all this money. And you're like, oh, so they're rich. And it's like, no, that money's all spent already. It's like,
1: true. Pre-spent. So would you, if you were telling like Baby John um, back in the day, would you guys have taken that Macy's PO? Or would you have maybe not gone into a big box store? Just, or like a, you know, mm-hmm. one of those stores
2: I, yet? I think in the end, one of our biggest dilemmas was that idea of doing B2C or, or going through just... Big box retailers versus just selling it on our site. I think when it came down to it, it was just the the mass appeal, like the reach. Mm-hmm. I mean, Macy's has a reach that we would never have, uh, especially in the early days. There's just no way. And so we always were in the mindset of always saying yes, just always saying yes, because we really believed that you never know. I mean, the idea that we had of making these DIY kits that came with videos. It wasn't, we didn't necessarily think like this is going to explode onto the scene. It was just like, well, this is kind of a clever idea. We haven't seen this before. Let's see what happens. So we, when we would get calls from Macy's or Urban Outfitters being like, we want to order, it was like, yes. And then we would hang up the phone. Then we would take the shot of tequila. And then we'd go, oh, (laughs) "Oh, that's Um, a lot of money that we got to come up with.
1: Let's unpack this Mike's a like turning bit. on the Uber app and being like, bye.
2: <laughs> bye. I got to go <laughs> I mean, before the phone calls over. Um, I
0: yeah. want to dig a little bit deep into this because when you guys were doing this, um, you mm-hmm. weren't in the online sphere yet. There wasn't really, you know, Amazon out there. The reach is different because it's traditional. Yeah. Um, it's big box stores. Absolutely. So where you say you need to be, you know, saying yes to everything, I like to teach. Be relentless with your nose. Like as a solopreneur and right. as a small business, right. you have to envision what you want to envision for yourself. I think as when you're in startup, mm-hmm. you get so distracted by all those really big deals, and it's hard to know what you really want. And that's changed in the landscape of being a solo entrepreneur. You know, now we get to choose what we want. Whereas you guys kind of um, it came to you, and then you were able to say yes or no. But it was really in the traditional model, wouldn't you say?
2: I think uh, especially because our it was like such a physical product uh-huh. that, and it was such a new concept that we knew that we had to leverage these people's audiences. Yeah. Uh, we knew that they were going to have to see it in a store, see an example of it and be able to actually hold it because there was no way that you were going to know what was in this box unless you actually saw it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think really early on, we really knew that we had to get it out with trusted names like it wasn't going to be enough if we were to just put our stamp on it because no one knew who our brand was at the time so we knew that we really had to focus because you know there's people that do retail plays and have thousands of small boutiques around and that and that's awesome and if your product is super especially hipster focused you usually can kill it like that but i think then you know you're also talking to three thousand people and those 3,000 people are ordering and they all have their own problems. So I think really early on, we knew that our goal was that we were going to work with only major retailers. Like mm. that, was, that was our play. I think That's when scary. we started off, we knew that if we were going to do this and work this hard for something, it, it couldn't be small. Like we weren't willing to have it be small. It was like, no, when we go do this, we only are going to ask these people. I remember William Sonoma was the first one that we called and you know, we only had prototypes at that time, but it was like this, but it doesn't matter. This is our goal. Like, so show her the prototypes. If she hates them, she'll tell us why she hates them and ended up knocking them off instead.
1: (laughs) Another podcast. Um, (laughs) another one. So then transitioning. So you guys obviously love the product sphere because you transitioned and you guys opened up pins and paper. So I guess now, because the business is about a year old, tell us about your model now, because we met you in a very traditional place. So were we in Project? You're at Project in Vegas, which is a trade show where you're selling wholesale to retailers and the big box stores walk through. Is there anything you're doing differently this time around?
2: I think with our card company this time i think the main focus is on having it be as passive as possible which i think doing trade shows is obviously not that passive of a mm-hmm. of a thing but our line is so new that we felt like we should cuz to us we know that there's two options there's either you have the amazon model where super passive. To us, we knew cards didn't sell on Amazon. That just isn't where people buy those. It's in places like Target and Walgreens. And so I think our focus is definitely on having it be more passive, but in a more, I guess, conventional way uh, with these huge retailers again. I also think it's because of the space that we're really comfortable with. And we've worked with all of these people before. So we kind of had the contacts Already to be able to do that,
1: call um, yeah, up. You can call up, Anth- can call up uh, Urban Outfitters, and it fits right in.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think we also design these cards around things that we knew would fit with these people, i because I, I think we knew that was the goal yet again. And I agree with you. I think it's very important to set what your goal is and to mm-hmm. not go with Maker's Kit. We definitely said yes to way too many things, um, and we just didn't have enough time to focus on all of them. So a lot of them would just fall by the wayside. And we're definitely trying to not have that happen again and to kind of really just keep it honed down. And I also think getting to a place where we were both so hungry five years ago when we were doing Maker's Kit that all in our head was like, blow it up. Make it as yeah. big as possible. Have this like crazy big company. Because, you know, we work with Birchbox and Tom's and National Geographic and and just blow it. I think... This time around, I think we really just want to be able to fund, I mean, really our own existences. I think that's kind of what, because last time we had 30 employees and I think this time around, we're really just trying to trim all the fat and be like, I would like to see it become passive enough and do well enough that we could travel and do all of those things because there really is a cost to having something so big that takes all your time.
0: Yeah. And even so, in logistics too, the, the, those kits are big versus enamel pins and cards are smaller, you know, so you could actually yeah. even, and then also yeah. with those kits, you have to source out everything that's in there as well. So everything. yeah, it's yeah. yeah. Less pieces for sure.
2: Oh, for sure. Like I said, I think it frees up time. And I think that's like the most important thing because We talk to entrepreneurs all the time who just want so badly to have something big. Like, oh, I want to have this huge company. I want to be a CEO. And I a lot of times feel, because I said, I think it's one of those things you don't know until you do it, like the toll that that takes on you. And if that's something that you're set up for, that's awesome. As a creative, it's just not what I'm set up for. Mm -hmm. Like it really always felt like kind of the death of the creative side when we were talking to investors about numbers and hitting targets and making sure. And I felt like there we got to a moment where it was like, we almost weren't liking it enough anymore because we were so overworked and so overstressed and we had too many employees that we were dealing with. And it really just became this like almost huge hassle Mm -hmm. for us.
1: So how would you say then that the cards are more passive than Maker's Kit? I guess Maker's Kit, was it a subscription
2: service? Uh, we had tried that. We worked okay. with a lot of subscription services. Okay. So we worked with Birchbox for a while and we're in a few of their boxes. And that, when we launched Maker's Kit in 2013, that was like the moment for subscription. Mm-hmm. Everyone always assumed we were a subscription because they were just like, this is the year of subscriptions. You <laughs> must be a subscription. Uh, like you must be one. But for us, we just found that it didn't, it just didn't translate into that way to our actual customers mm-hmm. like it just wasn't something that they were that they were interested in and then also we had so much ground going with all these big box retailers already that it would just have been a completely different business than what we had already set up for ourselves
1: mm-hmm. all right so what's your favorite because I was trying to remember some of the cards that I like there was one with a cactus for you guys and there was a rocket ship I think but what are some of your favorite cards that you guys are selling right yeah now?
2: so we do mainly all puns which I don't know where that started, to be honest. I think we just wanted to have something that was kind of like ridiculous and fun to work with. As I said, I think it was also because of the strict contrast to where we contrast to where we left our last startup with how serious everything got. I think we were like, we just want to do something fun and something cute that people can like and laugh at. So we started making all these cards. I think my favorite is the one with the, there's two rabbits, I guess, having sex on the card. Uh and <laughs> It's my favorite. It's my favorite one. You gotta look it up. It's it's really cute. Personally, yeah, I think I think that's my favorite one. There, a lot of them we hand draw. So we have like this robot that's holding this heart balloon that I drew. I think that's my favorite one just because I drew it. <laughs> um, but I I think we were super excited about this company because there's so many different levels to it that we get to do. I mean, we both like design a lot. Uh, Mike has is just a brilliant in terms of packaging, and I've been drawing since I was a little kid. So I think we get to draw the cards, we get to design the pins, we're getting to choose these retail partners to work with now, and we have a few few projects that we're working on where we're co-branding things for people now. So I think just getting to be able to keep it as creative as possible and having it that we're just constantly making things and not just trying to sell things has been like a really uh, big blessing in both of our, both of our lives.
1: So a couple of cards, like I'm on your site. So just to kind of share with the audience. So there's one with a a French fry pin and it says, I only have fries for you. Well, it's a little pin in the way, or give me a pizza that, and it's a little pizza pin or thanks a latte with a latte pin. So some really cute stuff where it, you know, I guess, talking about like papyrus, like how much I've spent on wedding cards there with no takeaway at all from that card.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, Like,
1: sure. like, what do you do with those cards where you're spending, you know, I don't know, eight to $10 on a wedding yeah. card that no, just goes in the trash.
2: It's a lot. And I think that was actually something for our company that we had to figure out was price point wise, because mm-hmm. when you buy enamel pins and in, in places, they cost anywhere from 10 to $13. But we knew there was no way that we could sell a card for that much. Just because once you put it on a card, it completely changes how people view it and what they think it's for. Um, And so we really knew that we had to keep it uh, low. But another thing is also like working with huge retailers. You also have to know that you also have to keep your price high. Mm -hmm. Because when you're selling to smaller stores, you're selling at 50%, you know, Mm -hmm. wholesale. And when you're selling to, massive stores. I mean, you're selling at, you know, 30%. uh, And you really have to set yourself up with that. If I could give anyone advice, if they were looking to do big box retailers, it's just sell things for a lot. (laughs) Like, you you know, be a luxury brand. Like, uh, I feel like being a luxury brand that only has to sell 10,000 units a year to hit their target versus having kind of, I mean, like ours, where it's like, you know, if you want to make it, make it, you need to sell millions. Um, And I feel like that's a lot of things that I think people don't think is you really get to set your brand's value. And I think branding is kind of the biggest thing to any product company or company or just personality in general is if you decide that that's what your brand is and that's what your look and feel is, and you stick to that, you can really you can really sell that idea. Yeah, um, but for us, cool. we've always wanted it to be as accessible as possible. So we have the exact opposite goal. But
0: <laughs> I think one of the things that people do to expand when they're in expansion is they create the luxury brand, the middle brand, and the the low cost brand. So if you wanted yeah. to, you could cre- just create another brand. So you start off as the lux brand. So let's say you're Lexus. Then, you know, the middle one would be Toyota and then the little, I don't know, what's less than Toyota, (laughs) like Kia or something. I don't know, but you get what I'm saying. I obviously know nothing about cars, but you get the, you know, if they were owned by the same company, like, (laughs) is it Lexus and Toyota owned by the same people?
2: (laughs) I think Uber is a really good uh, example of that because when when Uber started in San Francisco eight years ago, it was black car. That was it. You Mm -hmm. couldn't. And it was expensive. And that was the point. I mean, we used to take them everywhere just because six of us would get out of a blacked out Escalade. <laughs> and, you know, the guy would, yeah, and the guy would open the door and it would look like we were some branding. Talk yeah. about branding. Uber <laughs> used to be a really good branding move. And then, you know, and it went that way for a while. And then they started to do UberX, and, mm-hmm. which I know that the, I don't remember what his name is, but the guy that owns Uber hates it. Just, just thinks he, it's trash that they would sell rides for that cheap. Because he was only in the, the mode of luxury. Like that's what the service was. And then obviously, you know, the board was like, we need to be accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they did UberX and now they have Uber Pool. So I feel like that's a really good example of a brand that started off on top and then and then branched out. And it's also an example of how the guy was wrong. Because ever <laughs> since they started doing UberX, Uber's worth like a billion dollars now. And obviously yeah. that was the right move. To go, and everyone uses it. My dad, my seventy-five-year-old old Jewish dad, uses <laughs> it now to go anywhere. Uh, I feel bad for anyone that has to drive him. I apologize already. <laughs> A bit problematic that man.
1: That's how we get my grandma. Like she's uncomfortable. She lives in Orange County, and we need to get her to L.A. She, yeah. we're like, we're just gonna send you an Uber. So it's helpful. In that way, but they also used to have, speaking of like products, Uber used to have Uber family. So where you could get an Uber with car seats and so it would take, it would take kids around. And then they probably also saw that people weren't using that. Like either people were, especially in New York, um, you know, either people... I remember like you would take your car seat on the stroller and then you would take that car seat and put it in a cab or in an Uber. So they probably oh, yeah. also saw that that product wasn't doing as well or it didn't, you know, there wasn't a need. So they dropped that out and then added on new things.
2: I remember uh, uh, working with uh, one of our old mentors is Gary Vaynerchuk. He runs VaynerMedia or a huge media um, group Gary York. V? Uh, he, yeah, Gary V. Uh, love uh, Gary V. He's We've- your
0: mentor? It's Mina's yes. digital mentor. Hey. Yeah. I love him. He's kind hey. of swears a lot, but you know, for my yeah. taste. But yeah. you know, um, but I love him. Yeah, he's gruff. Yeah,
2: that's for sure. <laughs> he is. He is. He is a catch. That's for sure. He's a catch that you just don't know how to move fast enough to catch. You're yeah. like, I don't know how we got to this topic, but okay. <laughs> um, but he always told us that. The only thing that you can sell people that they will buy no matter what is time. Mm -hmm. If you can, like for us, for our DIY kits, it was the fact that you didn't have to go buy these supplies yourself. Like we were going to cut out the middleman. We were just going to get everything that you needed so you just didn't have to waste time. Um, And it's the same thing that he told us with why he invested in Uber so early, which is because it just saves you time. You have a car waiting outside versus you need to already be ready, go outside, wait to see if you can get a cat. And if you can really find some creative way to save people one minute, I mean, you are set up in a really good place to be able to, to kind of knock it out of the park at that point. Yeah, um, yeah, I love and that, that was really one of the main, that and also everything's a brand was one thing you really made sure that we understood was that you are a brand and the biggest way to grow your brand nowadays is through content. Whether it's through podcast or Instagram or videos on YouTube or whatever, I mean, with his wine business, you know, he grew it strictly through content. It makes millions a year, so.
0: But he invested in Snapchat too, right? Yeah. Which Insta Stories basically took over, and then Kylie Kardashian said something about I don't even open Snapchat anymore, and they yeah (laughs) yeah basically I I
2: remember knowing (laughs) Snapchat was done when mark zuckerberg offered them a billion dollars in cash and they said no and then the next day he offered them two billion dollars and they said no and i was like that is going to be the biggest regret of your life Mm. ever like yeah because not only did you say no but this dude is gonna take you down now yeah like and, and he did gonna, it through he's gotta Instagram. Instagram he he's yeah. going yeah, to take you down. You should have took those billions. Like, why not, that's a B. That's a B, yeah. you know. Well, and I think M. it's also <laughs> you know, important to know your goal, right? Uh-huh. Especially if you have a co-founder. Um, because we've seen a lot of companies run into problems when, when the two founders just don't agree with what their main goal is. Because if I had owned Snapchat, I would have been like, oh, did we say, oh, well, I sold mine? Like, oh, was not supposed to. Like, why would we not? That's a billion dollars. Beat. Like, why? Like, no, we got to be like a big crazy cup. Like, right? Or we could be billionaires, which is pretty cool. Like, I feel like that would be all right.
1: and, and start something else. Come up with something else. else. Yeah,
2: like come up with the new. Yeah, so I feel like those those guys probably think about that day a lot now.
0: <laughs> oh, uh Gary Vanderchuk always the, says that it's all about the hustle though. He wants people to hustle. Mm-hmm. I am against that mentality. I think that you don't have to hustle. You just have to be really smart about it. You know, um it's not like the number of hours don't equate how successful you'll be. So, but yeah. he's always like you should be eating ramen noodles 30, you know, yeah. 365 days in the year and yeah. blah blah blah. And that doesn't work for you know, we were talking about CEOs. That does not work for a CEO mom. You know, another thing where like when, you, uh, <laughs> when you're a CEO and you're, you were saying it's the worst ever, you're dealing with all these like employees and being tired and is working to death. Try having kids, John.
2: Yeah, <laughs> This is yeah. why we're good CEOs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually was <laughs> watching the same a, a documentary yesterday uh, <laughs> on why women get paid less. And uh, Stanford did a study that showed that after women have kids, they are actually, and I don't remember what they used to decide this, but they said they were actually better employees, oh, that they were oh. way more committed, that they were harder working, that they made more sacrifices after they had kids. Like, huh. anyway, sorry, just so thank you.
1: Thank I you agree, agree
2: with you. Mom. Yeah, okay. cool. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, my mom, you know, I was raised by a single mom. She worked two jobs. She was in the air force for 20 years as a nurse. Wow, and then I had a side job on the side of that, and raised three kids. And the
1: hustle point, is I real. Wake up
2: in the morning, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm even going to go to work. So <laughs> I, I don't know how she. We really did that.
1: The more, the more kids you have or the, you know, your, your time gets broken up. It's smaller sections. I, right. we were talking about this. Like I remember when I used to watch, I know, Biggest Loser used to be on for like three hours sometimes mm-hmm. back in my twenties. And I, would, I remember just like vegging on my couch after work and <laughs> doing whatever. And now it's like the last time I sat on my couch was never. What's the so <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember when. And so you just do like, you start to have to prioritize in different ways. But so you were talking about content and growing content. So um, in terms of tips for people, on Instagram or social media or video, what would you say um, has been successful for you guys?
2: I think one, I think before you set out on that, you have to kind of, and going back to the the Gary V thing that everything's a brand, no matter what you're going to sell, even if it's just like selling yourself or if it's selling a product or if it's selling an idea, you have to know what your brand is. Because if you make any content that is not relevant to what your brand is, you immediately confuse your audience and it's impossible to build an audience on that. Because people want to know what they're watching. They don't want to be like, oh, what is this going to be? And then every time it's different and you know, people can tell when you're not being authentic. Um, so I, I think really knowing what it is that you're trying to put across and never really swaying away from that. Um, because I think grow, especially with growing an audience, it's so difficult to do, uh, that if, you know, if you don't seem like you are aware of your concept or where you're trying to go with it, I feel like your audience knows that. And I feel like everyone is pressed for time that I feel like people don't have time to watch someone try to figure it out. It's like, you either figure it out and then show me or like, don't, don't show me. I have, you know, cause I have billions of other pieces of content that I'm bombarded with every single day. Um, so I think really knowing who you're trying to target and then not, not going away from that at all and really just shoving it down their throats, I think is one thing. And then also, like you said about Gary with the hustling all day, all night, I think (laughs) that's something that we did with our last startup. I Uh mean, we were working 17 hours a day, mainly in our office and then our, you know, phones would go off all day, all night with either retailers or our investors or someone that wanted to, and, and we just were doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And not until I was in Asia, did I ever have a moment where I stood back and was like, Whoa, that was like a lot. Like, that was so <laughs> real, real. like I remember one day we were throwing a cocktail party in the Vogue office and we were, you know, making something with them. And it was like this cocktail social because Vogue was doing a, a piece about us. And like, so doing it. And I remember leaving and just feeling like I didn't even know that it happened. Because we were already on to the next. It was like, okay, well, now we got to go back to the office and approve these products. And, and this time around, I think that the way to make it more passive, as it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, was we just decided that our goal was not to work that hard like that if we weren't figuring out ideas that allowed us to make income but also still get to enjoy our lives then it wasn't worth it no matter what the check said or no matter how many orders were coming in if it was like something where we were going to be in a place where we didn't have time to appreciate what was happening to us then it really it didn't matter at the end of the time because i think it's true that money comes and goes and if you're not focusing on your 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 own life as well as your company's, then I feel like both of them are going to go downhill because the moment that you become unhappy, then your environment becomes toxic. And so all the people that work with you, all the work that you're putting out, like I think it becomes apparent in it when you're really ran down thin like that. Um, and I think it's also just the difference between, you know, Gary being Gary and being such a uh, figure to millennials and then me being a millennial. Cause I'm like, we are in this day and age where we don't, Want jobs like that anymore? Like we don't want to work somewhere for fifty years. We don't. You know what I mean? Like we just don't yeah. want to do. We don't want to do things that aren't fun. We don't understand why you would do them if you didn't enjoy them. And especially growing up in you know terms of you know Uber being a thing where you can just work for yourself and this kind of like subcontracting every small job. It's just a completely different culture now, where I feel like that idea of the harder you work, the more it pays off, it's just not true. I've seen Mm -hmm. people work hard. My mom worked three jobs all of her life and she just barely retired. I just don't think the two, I think it's like an old American myth that people have been sold where like, oh, if you just work really, really, and you won't get anywhere without working hard, but there's no promise that because you work hard that you're going to make it. And so I really feel like believing in what you do, thinking that it's worth the sacrifice, and then also making sure that you have time to like your life and to love your life. I think it's very, very important, especially, I guess, to anyone under the age of 40.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, brilliant. You're beyond your millennial
2: years, John. Thank you. We say
1: it as if we're, we're like, right on that cusp. You never (laughs) know. (laughs) I'm a grandma now.
2: (laughs) Well, my my mom, you know, my mom's 67. Mm -hmm. My mom has always said it. My mom's like, oh, you guys just won't do anything unless it's fun. (laughs) You just ask why you have to do it. Like, Why? Like, well, that doesn't sound. But why do we have to do that? And I feel so, like it is true. It's we are the generation of why.
1: Well, so I was talking. To, I think I was talking to my husband about this because I just met two other moms slash wives that their husbands are either being able not to work or um, one husband's kind of going to stop working and help with the kids versus yeah. these wives are starting to take over and become like the bread the, the like earners, the major earners in the family. And I think what's happening too, is that women are starting to be able to take on that role instead of feeling like it's one or the other mom or Mm -hmm. mom that's not able to take care of their kids all the time because they're working on, you know, that you're, that women are being able to keep their careers going. And then men are also able to take a step back because oftentimes like You know, we never, we don't talk about guys, but they used to have to sacrifice. So they used to have to go to that job wearing the tie. And maybe they didn't really want to do that, but that was what was expected of them Mm -hmm. as well. So I think we're just, we're giving, we're given more choices now. And I agree, like working hard, yes, when you're starting a business, it takes a lot more hours than once the business starts to chug along on its own. And that's when you really have to have the time to dedicate towards it. But do you have to work hard forever? No. Like you just have to work smart and within, and you know, focus when you need to focus. And then like you said, then go to China for a year <laughs> or Asia yeah, for a year. Sure.
2: Well, I think one of, you know, one of the mistakes that, not mistakes, but just one thing that we had to learn is, oh, at our last startup, we would hire all these people to run every little thing because we thought it was going to save us time. And in the end, it just mainly did the exact opposite. Because mm-hmm. uh, now we had another person who had their own problems, who didn't understand certain things, who were good at something. And then who needed our time as well. And at the end of the day, I think with most things, it was like, oh, if we could have just done that ourselves. <laughs> like, yeah, we didn't want to, but I really feel like it took more to like have someone else do it and work with them than it did to just keep it a small lean machine that we ran by ourselves. And yeah, I think you get excited by this idea of hiring people. Cause mm-hmm. I think it legitimizes what you're doing. You're like, oh, we have employees. Like how legitimate is this? And like, we're actual bosses. And, and I feel like a lot of times that kind of takes its own toll on your business and like keeping up on things and knowing what everyone's doing and who's not doing it. And yeah, it's, it, I think keeping a small, a small, well-oiled machine is a lot better than having something that's very massive.
0: I think Jacqueline said this in a previous episode that's not aired yet.
1: I don't know when it's going it might, to air. It might have aired by the time we air this, this episode. I <laughs> have no
0: idea. Um, but she said it's hard to manage people. You know, it's its own set of skills that you have to learn. So, like, people think that, oh, you hire somebody and then voila, that's it. But it's not. You have to learn how to manage someone, too. And then yeah, everybody has a different dynamic with different people. You know, and some people don't like it. I don't like managing people at all, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, whereas Jacqueline, I think that she Naturally, her strength is communicating well with people, whereas mine is. I mean, I make all appointments online. I don't, you know, like, yeah. I don't like to communicate with people, yeah. you know. So, I think that's for sure, a hundred percent. Like, if you have to manage somebody, it is its own job um, mm-hmm. that you have to kind of think about. If that's what, you
2: yeah. You're- I mean, just a note to anyone who works for someone else. Just the only thing that I wish that I could tell all of our old employees is, please just like, download Chrome and any question that you have for me, please type it into the address search bar and at least <laughs> let me know that you looked it up first. I heard it so many times when it was like, oh, well, how do you do this on Photoshop? Like, <laughs> you know, YouTube is like a video thing and it will literally show you a video of, like, the whole thing. Like, and I just, I was always really surprised by how willing people and not that you shouldn't ask questions like obviously you should definitely ask questions but I, I think also we're kind of in the day and age where you really have this resource that will tell you anything that you need to know and you really kind of need to take that extra uh, extra step into doing it because uh, I also think that we live in the day and age of everyone just saying that they can do something because they should be able to because you have the world's greatest resource at your fingertips at all times in the day
1: yeah. So, I mean, it's funny because we did, we just, we were airing an episode about um, hiring virtually and like the mm-hmm. team, because I used to wear it as a badge of honor. I've got five people that work for me. They're on payroll. I pay their insurance. I have right. this huge office. And then eventually it, it is, it's like the burden. I would always pay them before I paid myself, mm-hmm. the management. So you start to get away from the creativity and you start having to just like take meetings with everyone and make sure that everyone's doing their job. And if, some, you know, the onboarding, the the trainings, the accountability, the check-ins. So in a, I'm in a similar place where I transitioned my business and now it's it's like, mm, I'll hire people virtually, but I like the simplicity of
2: this yeah. as well.
1: Like, And Absolutely. it's also not to say you can't grow the business because I have.
2: Yeah. And hiring, I think is like the, the hardest. So <laughs> I'm, I am yeah. horrible at it.
1: Same like, here. I'm not allowed I to hire people. Like,
2: yeah, me Because <laughs> I'm like, I like you. Yeah. And then I'm like, yeah, I, I like me. you. Like, you're the me. worst. You're the worst. Yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> I, and I only say it after, you know, hiring however many people. And I was just like, God, I'm really not good at this. And they're like, you need to stop hiring people based on their personalities. And I'm like, I know. But like, besides that, everyone just hands me a piece of paper. I'm asking them about questions that I have no idea the actual answers to anyways. Like, you know, we had to hire developers for to code our whole site. And it's like, you know, talking with them, it's like I Googled some questions.
0: And then, <laughs> you and Jacqueline are twins. You know, she they'd are.
2: start asking about it, and then I'd be like, Oh, um, <laughs> I have no idea what you said, but that I guess that means you probably answered well because I yeah, I don't know what you were talking about. So
1: Yeah. So I think yeah. shortcutting this, like the fact that you have a business partner and I have a business partner and the product boss, I think um, there's the ability to cover more ground too, right? So you guys are able to do more than just you. Is Do you have anyone hired on right now that you guys are working with?
2: No. And I think right now we're trying to keep that as long as we can. I mean, we've also, you know, decided things like we don't want to make things in house. We work with a, not really factory, but a group in LA. It's all these handicapped workers, either mentally handicapped or physically handicapped. Uh, we met this group of people a few years ago when we were doing Maker's Kit, but we could never get the pricing right to work together. They're a fabulous organization. Um, and we just decided that one of our main goals and one of our main ways to keep it passive was the least that we had to touch anything, the better off that we personally would be. Because we had made that a goal in our last startup, and we never really seemed to be able to stick to that And then we ran into problems with we needed a bigger warehouse because we had to store more products or store more raw materials. Or, and it was just like, I just don't. We just decided that but whatever we did next just couldn't have that many moving parts and that we just didn't want to have to touch it as much.
0: So, what about your role with Mike? Um, so, do you guys have specific roles? Who gets the final decision in certain things? Do you have anything like that where there's specific roles and specific decision-making areas that you each have of your own?
2: I think uh, we both trust each other with very specific, very specific areas. Like, for instance, product design, I have, you know, complete faith in Mike. Not only to just like design a product, but to know what's hot, what trends are out, what products is going to work. I mean, he's just had a great track record of that. So anything that has to do with that, even if I don't agree with it, I will agree just to do it and have no problem with it. If he fully believes in it. Um, I think on my side, it has mainly to do with kind of branding and with the companies that we work with. Um, Cause I think Mike has always had way bigger problem with saying yes to everything Mike and you know he's raised strictly Korean his parents are all about small businesses and growing businesses and and so just his kind and, you know he's also older than I am so we're not in the same generation and he fully believes in that work hard and the harder you work the faster you'll grow the more successful you'll be and I just have the complete different different background. I'm like, how do we get a house on the beach in Mexico? <laughs> like, how do we do that part? Like, Because I don't I don't see us talking about that. And I'm a little concerned as to how working with all of these people is going to give us enough time to do that. Um, so I think our, our balance works really well as a kind of a, a check and balance system. Mm-hmm. I think Mike just says yes to everything, and then we have to re-go over everything. And if I argue hard enough, we won't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, it's also a different styles of working that we have mike's a very passive person i can get really really aggressive with things uh, get way too passionate about that's why i was going to go into politics i was like <laughs> I argue and debate anything even if i don't agree with it um, and i i think we found a really good balance in the fact that we've worked together so long so we understand how we work mm-hmm. and i think that's something that a lot of people you know it takes so many years to be able to figure that out
0: yeah, and for sure. To be
2: able to work past your issues, and to just know what someone's going to do even before they do it. So when I see an email from big box retailer number ten who's trying to have us design display, and I'm like, Mike, if you respond to these people, like <laughs> we're done, like we're are not <laughs> building displays for a hundred and fifty, you know what I mean, hundred fifty And I know you'll say yes to it, so I already responded. We're not doing that. <laughs> um, I think so. I think really. Finding a partner and then also spending the time to really understand how each other work, not just on a personal level, but in a, in a professional manner as well.
1: Yeah, agreed. So we like to wrap up our interviews with some fun questions. Yeah. Maybe not as fun as your cards, but they're fun <laughs> yeah. nonetheless.
0: Okay. I mean, okay, fun. This is like you know, <laughs> old people
2: fun. I get, <laughs> I get nervous on quick fire things because I tend to be really problematic and everyone gets <laughs> mad, but let's... No,
1: you're going to... I hope these are great answers. Okay. <laughs> so it starts with, what is your coffee order?
2: My coffee order? It depends on which cup. I definitely am one of those uh, drinks way too much caffeine a day. Mm-hmm. um so at first there's this thing that's huge in LA right now which bulletproof no it's called oat milk oh it's oat like, milk lattes that's how I know I'm back in LA is when I'll be like <laughs> oh can I get soy and they're like oh we don't have soy we have oat and I'm like yeah I'm definitely back in LA now is that gluten-free um, though I don't it's, how do you make it delicious, it's, have, delicious. <laughs> it's delicious it tastes really good I don't really? I, yeah So I think probably an oat milk cappuccino to start. And then I switched to just espresso after that. I I lived in Italy for a few months. And there I realized that people thought it was really weird that we put milk in our coffee.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, Well, the
0: Americana is water and espresso. So, you know, it's like, you know, weak compared to them, you know. It's a lot. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so um, oat milk lattes I was in Pittsburgh not a single person had oat milk not even the Whole Foods oh, had oat milk yes. I was like you guys are obviously not in LA or New York where like I get they're yeah. my most favorite yeah it's Currently one of the, the things bridge. that
2: my dad is because my dad's like a super conservative which is kind of weird because he's Jewish and most Jewish people are not super conservative <laughs> uh, he's a very conservative person and he uh, I became vegetarian last year and between that, if he found out that I drank oat milk <laughs> i swear he would come kidnap me and be like i knew la was gonna ruin you you're gonna become one of those people he always says those one of those those people I'm like i don't know how to say that
1: you you are my soul brother i am an oat milk drinking vegan sometimes there person from la there living in new jersey okay yeah <laughs> i just the- found out what
0: orzo pasta was orzo. like last year <laughs>
1: That has gluten in it. You wouldn't be eating it if you lived in L.A. <laughs> I was like, what is this, tired. rice or pasta? Like, <laughs> no <laughs> pasta. Salads, yeah, bowls. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what's the favorite thing on your desk?
2: Favorite thing on my desk? I have this old photo. Uh, so my mom is Puerto Rican, and her dad, we share the same name, and we look like identical twins. But, but you don't look
0: Puerto Rican. I know. I
2: know. <laughs> but we it's like same face, except he's really dark and has black hair. But it's like we look the same. There's this wedding photo of my grandma and my grandpa. They got married when they were 16. And they, it used to be on the wall in my mom's house. And she put it up when I was like 15 or something. I was going to the bathroom. As I was walking down the hallway, I saw the photo. And for a moment, I stopped and was trying to figure out who and when I took those like county fair <laughs> photos. Like, And I'm just like, who is that in the photo with me? And like, where What? <laughs> the same age? It couldn't have been that long ago. I was like, I don't understand. And I asked my mom and she was like, no, that's that's your grandma and your grandpa. And it just scared the living daylights out of me. And then we went back to Puerto Rico a year later. And for the first time in my life, I just remember every one of my aunts and my cousins and uh, just coming up to me and being like, oh my God, you look just like my brother. Like you look, and it just, that freaked me out because I always had this huge identity crisis when we would go back to Puerto Rico where I would just be like, something's not right here, mom. Like, are you sure? Like, I don't want them to find out that you're lying. And then all of a sudden we are crashing this family reunion. I really had a big kind of issue with that when I was a kid because it was such an odd concept to me. Um, so I think that's the favorite, the, my favorite thing that I have on my desk is probably that photo of my grandpa. That's so awesome. cute.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. So finish the sentence. When I pick up my phone, I
2: never respond. <laughs> uh, I think that is definitely my response. John, to
0: that. another quick question: Are you at Inbox yeah. Zero on your email?
2: No. <laughs> So no, I'm gonna leave your like I'm gonna read your email, then click leave unread, <laughs> and I like leave it in my inbox as a reminder. I I just can't I. But my thing about phones is there is this myth out there that if you text my phone that I'm required to respond to you, mm-hmm. and I just don't agree. Like when I look at my phone and it's like someone be like, hey, what's up? I'm like, I just don't. <laughs> I just don't need to have that conversation. None of your business. Yeah, of your, if you have something to ask or you want to do something like, cool, let me know. But I just, I can't. No I time to chit chat. Well, I just don't agree with that. Like I don't yeah. agree. Cause you know, yeah. people get upset. Oh, it gets so many, like, thanks for calling me back. I didn't. Like, <laughs> no, yeah. And I'm like, shouldn't that, should you really call that out? Cause I feel like now you just acknowledge that I didn't call Like, I don't want to call you. I feel like you should just roll with it. Yeah, I just.
0: Yeah, it's the I, access thing. People have access to people constantly. All the time. Well,
2: and it, it really is a myth. And that's what mm. I think people don't understand is like, you don't have to respond all the time. Yeah. Like, most of the time, it's literally just your friend being like, hey, what's up? Like, nothing. What are you up to? Nothing. Like, <laughs> okay, cool. You want to hang out today? No, I'm busy. Like, okay, great. This was an awesome conversation. <laughs> awesome. Of course, I also get really upset when people ghost me. And I usually have to check myself and be like, I mean, John, you don't really respond most of the time. I'm like, I guess that's true. So does
0: Mike respond to all emails and all text messages?
2: Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. Mike gets the most upset at me when he'll be like, Oh, did you see whatever document I sent you today? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw it. And he's like, okay. And then I'll start talking about something. I'll be like, wait, what are you talking about? Like it's in the things that I emailed you. And I'm like, Oh, no, yeah, like, I saw it. Like, I saw that it was there. I didn't read it yet. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, do you read my emails? And I'm like, when it's, like, relevant, <laughs> like, you know, when I know I need to know what's in it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I'm definitely not an email person. Mm-hmm. Usually you, uh, you know. have to call me and then <laughs> get it. It's so fast. It's so much faster. It, like, it Calling doesn't have to it? Go back and forth. No. That's
1: so non-millennial of you. I know.
2: I know. <laughs> I know, you have to, to not.
1: connect
0: with people on a phone. Okay. I will not even listen to voicemails. Luckily now um, they have the transcribing that's, you know, yeah. on the iPhone. I love that so much. I'm like, yeah.
2: huh? delete. Yeah, I just let mom,
1: mine fill up and mine, I don't even.
2: Mine too. My mom, bless her heart, leaves me messages. Yeah. And I'm just like, mom, I don't <laughs> listen to that. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know why I would need to. <laughs>
1: Just text me, which
2: I won't respond to. I'll (laughs) call you back, or like, it doesn't matter. (laughs) I won't respond.
1: So, how about this? You wish you knew how to.
2: I was going to say fly, but I want to think of something real here. (laughs) Yeah. This is is a real thing. And I think this is going to touch back into that. I wish I knew how to not be so anxious in public. Uh, I really feel I'm the guy that will act like he's on his phone. A lot of times when I'm by myself in public, like I'll just like, and I literally talk. It's a a huge (laughs) issue that I have with myself. And I'm like, why do you do that? Like, I don't Um. understand. Um I don't like talk to, get to because
0: you don't <laughs> want to talk to people. I yeah. literally will put on a hat and sunglasses so nobody will approach me. I have a very approachable face in my defense that people approach me all the time. So she I'm does. like, she obviously does.
2: you can't see it through the podcast. She does.
1: <laughs>
0: you and John have <laughs> very approachable, dimples, you know, or something. It's I don't know. Dimples. People stop me all the time. And I'm just like, seriously.
2: <laughs> yeah, I really don't like it. I'm, yeah. I'm with you on that. It's also like, I don't respond to text either. So I'm not really like the most, I'm usually like, if we're not trying to make money together.
1: Yeah. I, really
2: <laughs> to I, that. I
1: appreciate you.
2: Then. Money or art. If we're trying to make so, art, of course, if not, I don't know. So
0: would you say you're an introvert or extrovert? This is another yeah, question I'm inserting.
2: I, I think that I'm definitely one of those introverted extroverts. <laughs> I, I think, well, cause I, I know, and I think this is why I don't, really, why I get so anxious about going out in public is when I'm in a group, I perform Mm -hmm. and it exhausts me beyond all belief Mm -hmm. because I will not let there be silence. Like I don't believe in it. Like (laughs) I've always been under the impression, like if you feel bored, then we shouldn't be hanging out. And I, I take it as a personal responsibility to make sure that Things are lively and people are having fun. And, you know, I can't take an Uber ride. Like, I I really refuse to take Uber most times because I will talk to the driver the entire time. And it exhausts me. You know, like, we get in and I'm just like, so where are you from? And I'm like, and then I just don't stop. And I'm like, oh, do you have kids? Oh, how is it living away from your kids? That must be rough. Like, and I just won't stop. And it exa- So I think that's the reason why I act like I'm on my phone all the time. Yeah. So I can see that. Uh, an introverted extrovert. I
1: like that. Do you watch TV?
2: I watch not, I wouldn't say TV. Um, Netflix. I watched Netflix. Yeah. Okay,
1: because this is the next question. Because sometimes okay. people are like, oh, I don't watch TV. So what was the last show you binge watched?
2: It's a show called Nailed It. Uh, oh, it's on I'll Netflix. It's this cooking competition that's about failing. <laughs> uh, so they like take these massive cakes that are carved like dragons that have fire coming out of the mouth. And then they take these horrible bakers and they ask them to recreate it. And it is just one of the best things that – At our old startup, one of the shows that we were pitching to networks was this, um, like, Pinterest or fail type of show Mm -hmm. where we get people to try to recreate the most popular things on Pinterest knowing that they won't be able to.
0: Mm -hmm. Because of the hashtag nailed it, right?
2: Yeah, because the hashtag Mm -hmm. nailed it. Yeah, and that's the catchphrase on the show. And the girl that hosts it is just the most entertaining woman that I've ever seen. It's not a good show. Oh,
1: it sounds (laughs) Awesome! I'm gonna watch that today when <laughs> I'm folding laundry. When you're watching TV, I don't it's,
2: think anybody calls it TV anymore. It's pretty great. Um, yeah, so that—that that I think was the last show that I binge watched. That's awesome. Oh, think- that and the show Pose. I don't know if you guys saw that. It's mm-hmm. amazing.
1: All right, we'll look those up. So, what should the title on your business card actually say?
2: do not text.
1: (laughs) Don't actually use this number. Find me in person.
2: (laughs) It'll just be blank. It'll have my name and be like, this is my name. Hopefully I see you around. That would be awesome. One of the things I loved about living in New York so much was uh, you meet so many people every day that whenever I would meet people out in bars, we would never exchange numbers. I mean, I remember specific nights where I met this group of women. They invited me to this birthday party. I left my friends to go with them. We took a cab all the way uptown, went to this massive birthday party, and then I left. I was like, so nice to meet you guys. I like, had the best night of my life. And there was no like, oh, but shouldn't we, because there's just always this, well, you'll meet more people tomorrow. I think I'm definitely one of those people that I prefer to talk to people I don't know because I find it way more interesting. You can learn a lot more, not just about them, but about yourself and how you interact with people and what you care about. Because I also don't do small talk. I jump right into trauma right away. (laughs) Tell me about the trauma. If you're not going to, then I don't really think this conversation is going to go far. (laughs) So, So yeah.
1: No, that's, it's true. It's like, I feel like New York and Vegas, you don't need to exchange numbers in
2: Vegas either. Yeah, well, everyone's lying in Vegas. Yeah, so, like, I, I,
0: <laughs> But oh, every culture uh, is there. I love how you hear so many different languages, different cultures. It's crazy.
1: You have yes, to explore it.
2: absolutely.
1: Um, so do you have an alter ego or stage persona?
2: I'm going to say yes, because uh, simply for the conversation that we were saying about being an introverted extrovert, I think there is this character that comes out whenever I talk. To people. Mm. Um, but I also feel like they're very, very closely related. Very closely related. And I also think my extroverted part is a little bit more problematic. I try really hard to make people as uncomfortable as possible. <laughs> I, well, I think it's really important. I I had this one philosophy professor at Berkeley who was just like, if you're not making people question what it is they do or who they are, then you're offering no one anything. And I I think that probably
0: makes them feel uh, closer to you though. You know how people say that when you're uncomfortable and then you just feel more vulnerable and closer to that person, like how people like they might fall in love out of trauma. Like let's say they were in a natural disaster together or something and then they fall in love because that conflict brought out emotions in them that they don't normally. Yeah. So I'm sure they end up falling in love with you, John.
2: (laughs) Hey, That's why I don't answer my text. I'm like, I don't know this number. Just don't text it. (laughs) <laughs> Don't text it. You probably made them talk to you about their childhood trauma. And now they feel bonded. Oh.
1: <laughs> All coming together. So. Um, so the last question then is what would you tell young John or baby John now that you didn't know then?
2: The things keep moving. I think that I've always kind of jokingly said to myself that the whole point of life was to learn to let go and to know that the story keeps going. Because, um, you know, you get so caught up in each chapter of your life. That you forget that you're literally—it's a—it's a chapter, like it, it's not the book. Like the book is its own thing, and that'll figure itself out down the line. Because you get into so in business in your personal life where you just feel like you don't know where things are going to go, and I feel like it—it it really stops you from moving. But I—I I think if you can just always remember that even if you stop walking, it's still going to move. Mm-hmm. And I think just just knowing that. Everything keeps going. I think is that the biggest is part.
0: seriously brilliant. I'm in love with you. <laughs>
2: I've been <laughs> final, thinking about final. it for a few years.
1: I will text you
2: later. Please, <laughs> please. I will write you back. I promise.
1: Maybe. 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 Um, Maybe. Well, thank you, you so talk? much. Like this is such. This is so fun. My face hurts from smiling and yeah. laughing. Thanks
2: for having me.
1: Um. So tell our listeners how they can find you.
2: Um, yeah, you can look up my new card company, Pins and Paper, anywhere. We're trying to be everywhere, but the name you can definitely find anywhere. And then my name is just John McQuaid. And if you type that into Google, J A W N, there's not very many of us alive. John. There's not. And
0: his login for Zoom was Johnny. <laughs>
1: It's good.
2: I mean that's what it is on everything. <laughs> my Instagram is Johnny, my Twitter's Johnny, it's all, yeah, it's all it's all that.
1: So we'll put a link in the show notes for how to find your website pins and paper and your social your social links. Killing it. All right. I know after thanks.
2: spending all this time of being like, "Yeah, I don't talk to people." I'm like, yeah, <laughs> me. DM me. Talk to me. DM me why not? I, d- I do respond to DMs. That is some. Honestly, I feel like if someone writes me on Instagram, they have more of a chance that I'm going to respond than if they text my phone.
1: That yeah. is literally what we just because told our
2: Instagram this tells you when you've read it. Now mm-hmm. I've made my iPhone stop doing that because I was like, "Well, now everyone's just going to know I don't respond." Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Instagram started doing the, you know, if you read someone's messages, it tells them. And I'm like, oh, that, yeah. Yeah,
1: we were we were just, just saying awesome that. Part. Like, Instagram is a way to connect with people that you wouldn't necessarily be able to connect with. You know, they might not write back to you via email, but if you DM them, they might they might respond. Yeah.
2: Well, especially like here in LA, um, because I curate a lot of art shows out here, and within, I mean, I've seen it with musicians and with artists, and I I feel like just younger people. I think Instagram is literally our kind of main way of. Connecting now, especially when you're out, I feel like you don't ask people for their phone numbers. You ask them for an Instagram because it's it's not as personal, but also you get a snapshot of their life, which I feel like
0: less creepy, right? You don't, you're not um, like creeping on them on Facebook, having to friend them. It's like less of a process, you know?
2: Yeah, and I, but at the same time, I also think it's more creepy. (laughs) So. That'll figure itself out in a few years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see you on Instagram. All right. Thank you so much for, for joining the Product Boss. This episode is over, but it doesn't
0: have to end. Head over to our Facebook group, search for the Product Boss Biz Community, or the link is also in the show notes. Come connect with other product bosses just like you. We'll see you in there.